Welcome to devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. I'm Marian Nulevant here in Portland, Oregon. And today we have on Andreas Wittig from Cloudonaut. Andreas, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm glad to be here on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and thanks for coming on here. So we want to talk to you about do's and don'ts for Dockerizing applications. So if you were floating on the Niagara River inside your barrel and you're about ready to plunge over Niagara Falls and someone next to you said, hey, Andreas, what, what's the deal with Dockerizing applications? What what are some do's and don'ts? What would you tell them? Oh, so there there's a lot <laughs> to talk about. Well, you, you, you don't have, you've got about 10 seconds before you you got to close the hatch and you got to head over that waterfall. <laughs> so why, okay. why don't you start with just one thing? One thing. Yeah. So I think one very important thing is when dockerizing your applications is, first of all, that you make sure that you're uh, slicing your application into as many Docker containers as you have processes. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that is probably interesting, especially if you have to deploy it to cloud environments, is that you make sure that your application is as stateless as possible. So that means that you store all the data in databases, in object stores, wherever, but not inside your containers. Right. Because a container should be disposable. Exactly. Yeah, that's the that's the reason for that. Yeah. Well, let's take a step back here, right? So there may be some people that are listening that they don't know what Docker is or they've heard of Docker, but they've never done anything with it. So what would the difference be between something like Docker and a virtual machine, for instance? What would the difference there be? So I would say basically the difference is there's the difference is not too big. So actually they are very comparable. The, the main difference that you can think of is that the Docker container is much more lightweight than a virtual mm. machine because we're not virtualizing the whole stack and resharing uh, the kernel. So that's from a technical perspective. But but the most important thing to to remember is it's much yeah much easier to spin up a container on your machine than spinning up a virtual machine, which takes much more memory, CPU, and everything. So that's the that's the big difference here. And and part of the idea too is that it's sort of like it's. DevOps as config, right? So like, let's say I've got a Docker container and it runs PHP, for instance, and I want to try out PHP 7.4. Like I can just change a number, right? And just spin up the container and test it out as opposed to manually installing something and removing it from my system, right? Absolutely. So that should be the case. <laughs> so it, all, it also depends a little bit on how you use Docker. But mm. if you do everything correct, then that's exactly what you can do, yes. Well, we're going to do everything correct because we got you on here to tell us exactly how we should be doing things so we're not going to be making any mistakes but i'll tell you one of the things that i was i was slightly disappointed by with docker in that i had been using for a number of years i had been using vagrant as a virtual machine to do local development mm -hmm. and everyone was like use docker it's more lightweight etc cetera, etc cetera. and the concept of Docker, like I think is amazing. It makes complete sense to me. And it's fantastic that you're able to kind of shrink wrap these different parts and then you can pick and choose only the things that your application actually needs as opposed to, you know, spinning up this heavy VM. But the thing that I was disappointed about is that in order to run it on the Mac or on Windows, I believe, you actually are spinning up a virtual machine, right? Isn't that right? <laughs> yeah, that, that changes a little bit. So it has been the case for macOS before. Nowadays, that's no longer needed for Windows it's still the case but they are also i think we're going in the direction that we can spin off docker containers without virtual machines in the future yeah well, um, wait how can we do that on the mac you're talking about using a hyperkit or something or with windows you mean no yeah. on, on the mac you said that it's no longer the case that we need a, a vm tell me more yeah, what's yes changed? as far as i know yeah as far as i know docker for mac doesn't require a virtual machine anymore yeah huh all right. I'm going to have to look into that because I thought for sure that it was still using, it, it was no longer using VirtualBox, but it was using HyperKit, I believe, which is like sort of like it's a different, it's a hypervisor type of thing. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, <laughs> actually. Okay. So it's, it's possible, but I'm not 100% sure. But it, anyway, at least it feels much more, it feels much more native uh, on macOS than it has been before. Feels a little bit, a little bit more nimble, right? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> what I, what I tend to use Docker for, well, really I'm using it for, for two things right now. So one of them is my local dev environment is something that I have been transitioning to, to using Docker for. So Andreas, if I can, can I tell you a story? Can you pull up a chair and I can tell you a little story? Absolutely. I'm keen, right. so, <laughs> keen to hear more. How about you, Marion? You all right? Oh, you yeah. good with it? Oh, tell yes. the story? Okay. So the website for the podcast that we're on now, devmode.fm, I open sourced it a while ago and it's up on GitHub for people to play around with. It's a craft CMS website on the, the back end and all that. And one of our 
fellow hosts, Jen Bloomberg, wanted to get it up and running locally on her machine because she wanted to play around with some of the stuff that was in there, you know, whatever. So I'm like, okay, I'll help you do it. She pulls it down. And the first thing she goes to uh, try and fire it up, it doesn't work because the database that I use is Postgres, right? And on her local machine, she uh, was just using this thing called Valet for local dev environment. Postgres is not installed. Okay, it's a Mac. So she has to brew, install Postgres. Away we go. So we're going to try again. Tries it again. Well, the dev mode website requires Redis to run. So it's that's the caching method that it's using is Redis. Okay, she's got a backup. She's got a brew install Redis. All right, we're up and running now, right? Nope, <laughs> not yet. Because another thing that the website uses is FFmpeg. So it uses that to transcode all of the audio into a, a format that's really nice for distribution. Now she's got a brew install FFmpeg to get it up and running. And the whole time that I was there helping her, we were doing this for like an hour. All I was thinking to myself, Andreas was, this really should just be in Docker. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> this totally should be Docker. This is like a perfect case or a perfect reason for having something in Docker because then the onboarding would be A, install Docker, B, type Docker Compose up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That That's, C, that's point one of the... Right place. Yeah. So I think that is one of the uh, eye-opening moments when you're actually able to spin up the whole environment, dev environment on a machine just by typing in Docker Compose. And if you do it on a completely new machine from a new team member or, or someone who jumps into a project, yeah, that's really that's really the the, the great part of of Docker, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the lure that got me into it is that I really do kind of need this for local d development because I am working with teams of people a lot of the time. And a big hassle and a big overhead is getting everyone up to speed. Like this person is using MAMP, this person is using Valet, this person is using Vagrant or Homestead. And, you know, they're all various things that have to be installed. And it's a big pain if, let, let's say you're working with a team of people and you decide that your application actually needs to use like a later version of PHP, like I kind of mentioned earlier, then you got to go try and upgrade everybody's machine, right? Mm. It's ridiculous. Whereas with, if everything was deployed in Docker, like you change one character, you deploy the change to the, the Docker file, or sorry, the Docker compose file, and everyone pulls it down and then they just get up and running, right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely the case. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's really perfect. There's one thing I want to mention. So, so sometimes I'm getting a little bit frustrated. So what you described works fine as long as everyone uses a Mac. Mm. Um, as soon as you have developers that are all also working on Windows machines, it gets a little bit more complicated because uh, really the, the slogan that you can run the Docker container everywhere is not 100% true. <laughs> so oh no, this is don't tell me there's no Santa Claus. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, that's that's the marketing side of things. The thing is a little bit in, we discussed already, so the implementation of Docker is different on different operating systems and especially creating Docker files that work on Unix-based machines as well as on Windows is sometimes a little bit tricky. So mm. think about mounting volume, stuff like that can be tricky. But in theory, yeah, the process that you have described works very well and uh, either you have to put some extra work into making it work on Windows and Unix, or you, you are in a very luxury position that all your developers use the same operating system. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't wait until, so uh, Jennifer has been on vacation. She's been like touring South America somewhere, but I can't wait until she gets back because now I want to be like, all right, remember that time that we had to try and set it up manually? Now I want you to pull it down, install Docker, type Docker compose up and away we go. Like everything is there and just working. And this is where I'm seeing, you know, everyone has different entry points into technology, right? We all have different problems that we're trying to solve. But this is something that is really luring me into the Docker world because it's a very real problem that I have. And to be able to shrink wrap the stuff that I need for these projects, like it's just, it's going to save me so much time in terms of onboarding, troubleshooting, getting people up and running. And I realize this is only a fraction of the places and the reasons why people use Docker, but at least for me, local dev is somewhere that it makes complete sense for me to be using it. Makes me think that maybe if we were using Docker, it would be possible to arm twist the people who say, oh, well, I can't do local dev. You know, I'm I'm more the designer. I'm more the, you know, I'm not the technical person. So you have to do all the technical stuff because I can't do local dev because typically it's because yeah. I can't, I can't possibly type at a terminal. Yeah. Because you're, you're kind of taking the DevOps 
out of the equation, right? So it's DevOps as config. And yeah, someone has to create the, the Docker images or the Docker Docker compose file, or you can just grab it from somewhere else, like someone that's got that stuff working, you know? But for me, this is something that uh, you got to, Andreas, you, you can't just tease me and tell me about stuff where mounts don't work correctly on Windows. So what, what are these gotchas that I have to keep in mind? Yeah, so I think the thing is a little bit, so creating a Docker file, which basically creates the Docker image that you then can spin up a container of, this is where you yeah you put you put all your knowledge that you have in your head and write it down into a file basically that's the configuration part you install all the dependencies and everything and this is this is uh, usually it, it takes some time of course you have some you have to do some investment into that but the big benefit is what you already mentioned is you can reuse that for probably most of the projects that you are doing mm. as long as you are using the same technology stack for for those projects so that's mm. the good part so it pays off very quickly and the thing that i mentioned is so what i had troubles with is just one one very simple example is so you run docker compose and to be able to override files that are already baked into the image, you mount some local volumes, for example, for speeding up the development cycle so that you, I don't know, have your HTML, JavaScript, CSS files just mounted from local disk so that the, the server re, uh, responds with the, the latest version every time you send the request. And yep. one thing that I struggled with there is, so actually I was handing over the Docker Compose file to a, a client of mine and he was saying, oh, it doesn't start on my machine. And I, I, I mm. thought, wow, that's not, that's not possible. <laughs> We're using right. Docker. <laughs> right, right, right. Every machine. And basically we ended up, uh, I was installing uh, Windows <laughs> on oh, a machine. God. So to be able to, to test what, what is happening there and what I found out at the end, so hours and hours later, I actually found out that, yeah, the way that you define path in Windows and Unix is, is different. And so what it was with Docker Compose, I was mounting the wrong path, basically. So that was a very simple, it was very simple to fix, but not that hard to detect. So this is where so sometimes... So what, what exactly was wrong? So, I mean, you don't use backslashes? Like, what do you what do you use for the path then? So I think it was even the the, the starting point of the path. So the base directory was wrong uh, in, that, in that scenario. So, yeah. Yeah, so I think there are sometimes some some small issues that that can cause some troubles when just handing it over one to one. Of course, uh, if you know about these problems, it's it's very easy to fix. But uh, yeah, it's just sometimes you 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 have to debug it on another machine to find out what's going on there. Yeah, everything works beautifully until it doesn't, right? <laughs> As always, yeah. <laughs> but so I mean, the what Docker reminds me of is one of the earliest cases of people kind of sharing stuff was when people would share recipes. You know, like whether it be, you know, housewives or chefs or whatever, they, they, they would have recipes for cooking a dish that they would share. And they'd have like a little Rolodex of these recipes and they could just pull a card out and they'd be like, all right, so when you're making this particular thing, you need two parts of this, one part this, and then mix it this way and then do this, that, the other thing. And that really is what these, the Docker Compose file kind of is, is that it's saying, you know, hey, take this thing, take that thing. And you get the ability to pull it down from like a base recipe that someone else made, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, what's a popular online platform for recipes in the US? Do you know one? Oh, God. Um, I'm just going <laughs> to say bare, Barefoot Contessa. Okay. Because we did, so, we did their website. So I'm going to say that she is the, she okay. is the source. Okay. So, so in Germany, we have, that's called Chef Koch. So this is a, a funny platform. So, but what you know from these platforms where you find a lot of recipes from just anyone publishing them uh, in the internet, it's sometimes a little bit hard if you start completely. So to, to how do you know if the recipe is really doing what you want it to do? Yep. And so this is, for example, important from a security perspective. So right. what, is, what is actually in the image? that I'm using here. So what's the Docker file that built that image? And so that is what I do when having a look at these Docker Compose and Docker files that, that others have published. Uh, I think it is very important to go through these step by step to see what's really going on there. So to first of all decide, is that really what I need here? And also to, to have kind of a security review of what's going on there to think twice about what, what could be the implications uh, of that. And I think it's also 
a very good way, as always with open source, it's a very good way to learn by just yeah. reading through how others solved their problems. So, so that's what I can recommend. Yeah. Not just, yeah. not just like, follow the recipe without, without any thoughts on it. Yeah. yeah, it'd be like if you get grandma's cookie recipe and it says cyanide is on the list of ingredients, like you probably, you probably wouldn't want to make them, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you want to you vet the recipe. But the, the reason I was kind of yeah. going with that analogy. The recipe says lard in my family or whatever. You've got a lard recipe? Whatever's the cheapest shortening. Oh, I see. Yeah. 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 So you do kind of want to make sure that they're right and current and up to date. And Well, and that's the fun thing with recipes, as well as with some of these Docker images, is that you get to see, as you were mentioning, Andreas, like exactly what goes into it. And you can make it their way when you start out with, but then you've got a basis where you can make these little tweaks and changes to make it suit your tastes. It, whether it's if it's a recipe or if it's a you know a Docker image, little little tweaks so you can start stand on the shoulders of giants and start with something that someone else has done, read up on it, see how they're doing things, and then you can just make little tweaks to kind of make it your own. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this is the way that Docker works because it has this composable file system. What's it called? Like a layered file system or something like that? Yeah, or some some people call it onion file system as well. Yeah. So that basically, that file system makes sure that also you can share Docker images between different projects or, yeah. Between mm -hmm. different applications, and you don't have to store the whole thing over and over again. It basically makes sure that you only have to store diffs between those images. And especially if you use it to deploy frequently and you're only changing small things in your source code, you don't have to rebuild everything from scratch each and every time. So not all libraries, all that stuff. And so that's basically the idea behind and that works very well as, as well. So I think, yeah, what Docker do, is doing great is uh, this is a great user experience for a developer and for a DevOps engineer. So the tooling, the experience that you have with it, this is really uh, outstanding, I think, compared to, to other other uh, solutions. Yeah, because what I did is I built a, a base PHP image that had all of the stuff that I'm always going to need. And then I built it and, and building these things can take a little while, but then I published it on this thing called Docker Hub, which is kind of a, a place where people can share these images. And then I have anything that might be specific. The application that I'm building goes into another Docker file that builds off of that base. Right? So it uses everything that's in there to start with. And it says, okay, now add Postgres because we're going to be using, uh, so we need to add the, the PHP PDO connector for Postgres, you know, or anything else that's project specific then gets added in there and it kind of gets folded on top as a layer. And the nice thing is that this base image, like I never have to rebuild this thing. You know, I start a new project, it just pulls it down. And then the, the project specific stuff, just just what's different kind of gets layered on top. And it's, it's actually pretty amazing how that works. Yeah. Another aspect is, so if you deploy to a cloud provider, you, all, you have the same here. So with the deployment, you only have to fetch the difference to the previous version of your Docker image, which is probably just the, the files that you've changed and not the whole PHP uh, image and everything. So that's that's taking, or that is in effect there as well, not only on your local machine. Yeah, and the build times are significantly lower, which is fantastic because you, you can kind of pre-flight and build the stuff that you, you know you don't have to worry about. It's not going to change. And then you just layer the other stuff on top of it. And the cool thing is when you're getting started, you can just look for someone who has made an image that is something that you need, or there are official images for all the big things like Nginx and PHP and Postgres and Go and all these things like images exist for those already and are officially maintained. And as you mentioned, you can go in there and, and see how the professionals, you know, build these things. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that is, I think that is, so I'm using a lot of these official images and many of them are really of high quality and you can also learn a lot by having a look at their Docker files. So to see what they're doing. So that's really fantastic i think we so i'm i observe a little bit that that more and more open source projects or even software vendors are starting to publish well-crafted docker images to make lives easier for for everyone who has to use their their software or their projects so i think that is another important thing and when i when i Actually, when I evaluate an open source project, I really have a look at what's the state of their Docker image. How easy is it to use it? Is uh, it yeah. has someone put some thoughts into it, or is it just is it just a very simple solution that they came up with? So I really like that that more and more projects are taking that into account because it makes life so much easier, especially if you just want to try out things or you want to build a small proof of concept or whatever. So that's really also a good way to use Docker. Yeah, and, and getting back to the re kitchen recipe analogy, so one of 
of the things that you can think of as in terms of what Docker does for you is so maybe to make whatever it is you're making, you need a bunch of specialized equipment, right? Like maybe you need a mixer and maybe you need a, a certain kind of stove or a certain certain kind of skillet or, you know, whatever. All of that stuff can be wrapped up in, into the Docker containers and it's just there for you. You don't have to install it in your kitchen before you can actually use it. Like it just magically appears. And then the then you can just focus on the actual recipe and the ingredients that go in it. And at least for me, for developing stuff and then also for onboarding, like onboarding is just so huge in terms of being able to just provide people with a, a simple solution to get this thing up and running, not only for an internal development teams, but just about every team that I've worked on, they often have contractors that come and go and making the cost of onboarding some someone lower, I think can be huge for a lot of organizations. Have you have you encountered that in your your work? Yes, of course. So so it's not not only for uh, for projects where you have a lot of people coming in and go. It's I think it already pays off if you have just two or three people working together mm. because only one of them has to figure out how to spend how to uh, spin up all the the the, uh, the dependencies uh, properly on your machine. And of course, especially the more people that are involved and uh, that hop on and off, the yeah the more important it gets to to be able to recreate that environment from scratch. Also, I think yeah so. I think it also makes it much easier to dive into a new project. So I think it's, you don't have to care about all the details at the beginning, but you can mm. make changes later on if you need to. So I think that is also interesting. So you can get, you can get up and running quickly, but it's also very flexible. You're not really, yeah, you don't, there are not much rules that you have to follow. You can extend the environment if you need it very quickly. So that is, I think, an, an important aspect as well. Yeah. So again, perfect example. I was testing PHP 7.4, which is relatively new. I wanted to see how it performed. So I did exactly what I mentioned earlier is I changed one character. I started uh, the, the Docker containers to go up and running. I tested the application that I had in it, decided that, uh, you know, it wasn't quite ready for prime time. So I just bumped it back down a version and back up we go. You know, no huge friction in getting this stuff up and running. But let me ask you a question. So let's say it's just me. Let's say I'm a freelancer. I do work on my own. Are there benefits for, for me just working on my own to be adopting Docker as part of my, my workflow? Yes, I can tell you from my perspective. Perspective. So I'm a freelancer as well. So we have various projects that we work on. So I'm working together with my brother. That's why I'm talking about we. <laughs> and our customers have different technology stacks because we focus mm -hmm. more on the infrastructure, cloud, AWS side of things. Originally, I'm a software developer, so I still know how to code, but I'm nowadays more focusing on, on all the cloud and DevOps thing. But that means that in the projects that I do for our customers, the technology stack is very different. So there's PHP, there's, there's Node, there's there's even Java, a lot of different uh, things. And for me, as a freelancer, using Docker makes sure that I can spin up all the different environments with all the different dependencies and different versions and everything very quickly and easily on, on the same machine. I have experimented in, in former times. I had, I don't know, multiple users, uh, virtualized machines, all that stuff oh, to make sure God. that <laughs> I can deal with that for, for all the different clients. Mm -hmm. So I think that is, so if you have really different technology stacks as a freelancer, this is also very very valuable to use to use Docker there. There are even there are operating systems that really use Docker containers to spin up isolated environments that you can use for different projects. For example, I've seen a freelancer, a friend of mine, who is actually was using that to the extreme. So he really was spinning up new Docker uh, containers for each client that he was working on, including all the tooling that he needed as well. So even VPN and everything. I don't know. It was a really crazy setup. I, maybe I don't recommend it, mm. but I think it's it's interesting what you can do. With, with that mechanism under the hoods. Well, and so, operating systems that depend on Docker, we would call them Docker rating systems. Right? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, Marion, you were going to say something? I was saying that what he was doing was the equivalent of having a different computer for everybody you're working for and with. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's kind of right. But I, I do think that is a benefit of using Docker, even if it's just you, is that you can think of it as the website or application or whatever it is, is shrink wrapped with everything that it needs. So if you got this old application that needs like PHP 5.3, and some really old stack or whatever, hmm. that's fine. You, you, all you have to do is spin it up. Like you, you don't have to be installing and uninstalling stuff either on your actual computer or on your VM. All of that stuff just kind of comes along with the, the project, right? Yeah, that's true. So yeah, the client from five years ago is calling. <laughs> he needs to change. Right. To his, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good point. Yeah. And this happens a lot. 
right? It happens a lot that, you know, people may have a, a local dev environment and they're keeping that relatively modern to keep up with the times, but they will have clients that, you know, are from a couple of years ago that only call them when something goes wrong that, you know, it may be that uh, their whole system won't even run on the modern environment that you now have locally. So having that all kind of shrink wrapped rivet with it is, is really nice. Uh, Marion, what do you think? Do you think something like that would ever be useful to you? Oh yeah. I, I'm right now I'm going through the, uh, the, how many days does it take to get onboarded thing, mm. which is, which is, uh, would be nice if it was quicker. And, you know, we were talking about how it's useful to have Docker if you have a lot of people working on your one thing, but mm-hmm. then we were talking about how it's useful to have Docker if you're one person are working on a lot of different things. Right. And I suppose yeah. if you're one person working on one thing, then maybe it's not so, so useful, but still you have to have that it's not really one thing it's the local development it's the staging environment it's the production environment so you've got three right there yeah it lets you wrap the entire context around the project and there are benefits all over the place to that whether it is onboarding multiple people because they don't have to reinvent the context on their machine or whether it is you as one person going to multiple projects each of which has a different context like it's all just kind of part of the part of the package so the friction in going between them is, is kind of low and that that is where I've been seeing the real benefit to using this and I am only part of the way into the whole docker thing so I'm not yet deploying it in production and, and serving it. And I think there's a whole another world of benefits that you get when you, you start moving to that. But just for local dev alone, it does, it's been it's been fantastic. It does sort of feel like it's coming for us. Like it encapsulates and documents and this is the state of things the same way that you could say, all right, you know, it's in, it's in Git and we want this version. We want the such and such, mm-hmm. and, you know, and w- that used to be something that we didn't do. You know, it's just like, well, the latest stuff is up there on the server. And if you want to change it, you go edit it there. Mm-hmm. And that has, there are problems with doing that things that way. In some ways it's simpler, but for anything remotely serious, it's not at all worth it while doing it that way. And we've learned that it's better to take the hit and, you know, have a source code control system and, and uh, manage stuff that way. And this sounds like this is a sort of the same thing for the environment. You know, you say, oh, well, you know, it just sort of runs on whatever computer, you know, you shove it at it and then you keep shoving until it comes up and runs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so perfect example. Let's say after we got off this podcast, Marion, you said to me, hey, that sounded interesting. I want to get the devmo.fm site up and running on my machine so I can play with it. Right? Uh-huh. If you had said that to me, you know, six months ago, I would have said to you, sorry, Marion, I'm busy. I've got an appointment to have my hair done. Like it's just, that's not right. happening. <laughs> You've been through it with Jen and you it was not a fun experience and you don't necessarily right. want to do it again, understandably. And, right. and I would have been through it, you know, I would have gone, oh God, you know, do I really have to do this? Or, you know, why don't I just try and backseat drive and make useful comments without actually being able to run it? But yeah, if you could do it easily, but, but, it would be good, worthwhile. Yeah. But now the fact that everything's all dockerized, like I would have no problem doing it because I know it would be 10 minutes tops. <laughs> In terms of our, our our time getting it up and running, you know, it would be it really would be that easy to get that's, it up. And that's running. right up until you find that I'm actually still running Windows Windows NT or something. But yeah, well, then I just wouldn't talk to you anymore. We'd be so done. One of those one of those old white Mac. I'd be like, you know, I'd be faking like a bad connection, like. Uh, Marion, I can't hear you anymore. Gotta go. <laughs> so I, I want to, Andres, I want you to, to t- talk to us about the ways to do it right and the ways to do it wrong now that we've convinced ourselves that it's the right thing to do if you do it right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think maybe one one aspect I want to go into before before I do that uh, is, so you mentioned that you haven't you haven't really used Docker to deploy the application to mm-hmm. to production. And Correct. I think that the good news is you use Docker in the same way that you use it on your local machine to deploy stuff on production. So all cloud providers allow you to do so. There is Kubernetes, there is ECS, a lot of tooling available to do so. I would say it's it's prime time for containers on on in the cloud. And and I think what I will talk about next. So the well, hold on. I, I, I sort of lied. I sort of lied. Okay. Before you, move, before you move on to that. So I sort of lied, like I kind of am using it. So we use a system called buddy.works for our deployment pipeline. Mm-hmm. So when we push against specific branches, it will do the actual build. And that actually spins up a Docker container and does all of that, the build steps in the cloud. And then the results of that end up getting deployed to our production server. So I guess I'm like half using it as a, it's, it's being used in, in 
the deploy process as well. Mm -hmm. It's just not being used on the actual server that is running the thing. Okay, cool. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I didn't want to. But yeah, so the thing is, so the Docker image that we create, you can create it on your local machine. You can also create it as part of a deployment pipeline or in a more mm -hmm. automated way. And then you can use that image and deploy it to whatever cloud provider, or even if you really want to on-premises, uh, do it on-premises as well. The thing is, a lot of the best practices around Docker and building Docker images is, is not only for your local dev environment, but also make sure that you can use the same containers, the same images and Docker files to deploy to production as well. So I think... But how does that work? Because like, it's, for instance, there's a certain stack that I want in local dev, like Xdebug and other debugging tools that I don't necessarily need or want in production. So how does that work? Yeah, that's true. So so that is that is a whole other story. So yes, I, I totally agree that sometimes it is it's not very useful to have really the same Docker image that you lose locally and you deploy. But what I mean when talking about using the Docker file locally is basically you you have to somehow come up with the image that you deploy to production. Right. And this is something that you have to yeah to craft on your local machine and to to test on your local machine as well. So this is what I'm talking about. And I think oh, okay. in many situations it's exactly as as you said. You should not mix the Docker images that you use really for development, where you have yeah all the development tools installed as well. That should of course not be deployed to production. But yeah, but I think there's that step in between where you create and craft the Docker image for production, and you can start that on your local machine as well, which again mm. uh, comes with very short yeah cycles that you can go through when when developing and testing these images. Yeah, um, the pattern so that, I've seen a lot is people will have a Docker file and then a Docker file, or sorry, a Docker Compose file like dash production, you know? Mm -hmm. And the fun thing there is that they can, you can spin up the actual Docker containers that it, it will be deployed to in production on your local machine. So if you wanted to like test it locally, you can totally do that, right? Yes, or exactly. staging or wherever you want to test it. Yeah. So I guess it would give you the chance to test the real thing and not just, yep. oh, here's the staging version and it's version and it seems to work, but actually the production version is wildly yeah, and that's, subtly different. Yeah, and that's the amazing part about Docker. And that's one of the reasons I want to get into using it as a full part of this pipeline is it's not that you have an environment in staging and production that is kind of sort of similar to what you're using in, in development. You can have something that's exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's really the cool thing, I think. And also, I think what has, what has changed in the last two or three years is that nowadays you really can deploy Docker image to your cloud provider. So I'm an expert in AWS. So mm -hmm. there's AWS Fargate and you can really think of it as you can spin up a Docker container based on your own Docker image without anything else. You don't need to spin up virtual machines anymore. You can just spin up Docker containers. That's that's really the, the smallest, or that's that's an that that's a resource that you really can spin up in the cloud nowadays. So that makes it also really convenient to use Docker locally and as well in as with AWS or your cloud providers. So I think that is an important point. Okay, but but I promised to go over some some do's and don'ts. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So. I think one thing that I would uh, mention is uh, what I highly recommend is use environment variables wherever you mm. can to configure your applications. So in the past, you've probably used configuration files. So that is that is how we have done it for years. The problem with that is that works fine on your local machine. So you can still yeah, copy or mount that file into the Docker container, no problems. But when you start deploying it to the cloud, you usually don't have any way of uh, attaching an additional image, an additional file, any configuration file or something. So the most convenient thing that all environments support is using environment variables. And this is also what is really built in as a first-class citizen into, into Docker and Docker files and everything. Thing, uh, is to use environment variables. So for example, to configure the database endpoint, I don't know, passwords for any uh, third-party APIs, stuff like that. And so this should be a configuration and uh, configuration by environment variable. Yeah, and that's something that Docker will just inject into the container, right? Exactly, yeah. So you can pass it along. So with Docker Compose, you can even just reference a so-called env file where you store these environment variables. For On AWS with Fargate, you can configure them 
but with Kubernetes, you can easily use uh, environment, environment variables as well. So that's basically what everyone agrees on is <laughs> we use environment variables here. And so you mentioned it a couple of times, but we haven't defined it yet. So what is Kubernetes? Yeah, so that's basically a way to orchestrate containers. So that's what, what I would say is the, the main thing that it does. So which means it allows you to spin up containers and make sure you are able to deploy them without any downtimes. It makes sure that you are, uh, have a health check in place that checks if the container is still running and responding, replaces that. So yeah, managing those containers and orchestrating them together is what, what Kubernetes is all about. And the equivalent on AWS is there's also Kubernetes. So we have that on all cloud providers. And AWS has something called Elastic Container Service, ECS, which is basically another solution doing very similar stuff on AWS as well. Yeah. And is that using Kubernetes under the hood or? No, no, this is, um, this is a complete different implementation, but I think the con I would say the concepts are very similar. So what you can actually achieve with it is similar. There's also Kubernetes on AWS, which is called AKS on AWS. So you have two options there, basically. Gotcha, gotcha. And my understanding is that Kubernetes can also be used for fun stuff, like where you normally might use a load balancer or whatever. You can effectively orchestrate multiple containers spinning up and using up as many resources as you need in order to be able to do the thing, right? Yes, Exactly. And it also, basically what I maybe forgot. So the thing is you spin up containers on a fleet of servers. So not only right. on one machine, but on multiple machines. And you make sure the containers can talk to each other, that there's an entry point from the outside to those containers running in the cluster and so on. So that's basically what Kubernetes and, and ECS is about. Yes. And one of, one of the stories about Kubernetes that I think is just kind of amusing is, so one of, one of the interesting things uh, that I think in terms of Kubernetes is, uh, does anyone remember a game a number of years ago that was introduced called Pokemon Go? <laughs> a little bit, maybe. <laughs> a little bit. Okay, yeah. So they actually used, so the Alphabet company owns Niantic, which is the, the company that did Pokemon Go. And the fun thing is that they were using Kubernetes to kind of scale all this stuff up, right? And they had this case where they, you know, like with any project, they did a, a launch target for how much traffic they expected to get. And then they did a worst case estimate, which was five times the traffic that they expected to get, right? Which is a pretty reasonable thing to estimate, right? Because you don't, five times what you reasonably expect is going to happen, it seems pretty safe. Well, what ended up happening, and I'll, I'll link to this in the, in the show notes, is the traffic was 50 times what they thought it was actually going to be. 50 times, okay? And because they were using Kubernetes, like it worked, you know, everything scaled up. They did have to have, you know, some Google engineers on board to make sure that they did everything right, but the horizontal scaling worked. I mean, that's just crazy. Can you imagine if you if you were developing an app that you thought was going to do, I don't know, you know, 10,000 hits in a, in a day or whatever, and then it ends up doing 500,000? <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Actually, when I build yeah. an app, when I build apps, I'm failing most on the marketing stuff. <laughs> so, mm. so I never get that much traffic. On. <laughs> you have no traffic at all, right? Yeah. But, that, but that's the interesting thing about this story, right? It's just that they, they managed to, because of the platform that they chose, the fact that it became super popular just wasn't an issue. Mm, I'm just thinking that that's often my experience is that you're expecting one a day and you get 50 a day and really it's not a problem. But... <laughs> Well, okay. But when the numbers start to get that big, like it, it ends up becoming a real problem. Oh, right? yes. Oh, yes. And then, the, you know, Pokemon Go had, you know, other like social problems, like, you know, unintended flash mobs and places where they weren't appropriate and stuff like that. But Right, right. Well, I'm just speaking just from the technical side of things. So they had 500 million downloads of this app and they had 20 million plus active daily users in, within the first week. Like, that's insane. It's just an insane amount of traffic that they ended up with. Yeah. But that's the kind of thing that when you're using a technology like Kubernetes, which Docker is a, an important part of, like you can handle that kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, Andreas, sorry for the tangent. Get, let's give get some more do's and don'ts of the when we're deploying applications with Kubernetes. Yeah. So I think one other uh, thing that we already talked about is I would highly recommend to keep the container stateless. So which mm. means make sure your application stores everything in a database, uh, an object store, in any third party, basically 
the storage or database service that is available because that allows you to to, to easily scale what you have discussed right now. Right. It, it makes it much easier to deploy. It, uh, it also makes it much easier to operate the whole cluster. So because you don't, you don't have to care about persisting data. So that is, uh, if you can, <laughs> try to avoid. And I think nowadays with managed databases everywhere, it was never easier to achieve that so, than so today. So what's the wrong way to do that? What would be some stateful ways of storing data? For example, if your application uh, stores, let's say, user-generated content and it stores that on disk. So I don't know, people can upload their profile picture and you just store it on disk. That means it's... It, yeah, that, that means whenever you shut down the container, it will disappear, uh, basically. Or you have to make then sure that you persist it on a persistent volume somewhere, and then it gets complicated from an infrastructure side of things. So in theory, that's possible as well. People are also doing that, but I but I think the complexity that you get by doing so uh, is, not, is usually not worth the effort. So you, you want to make sure that if you delete all of your Docker containers, that you can just recreate them and everything is just going to continue working. And this reminds me of something that I did this to somebody. Like kind of kind of to have fun with him, but also just to prove a point and to help him understand what was going on. He was someone that had a, a local dev environment that was like this very precariously balanced thing. Like didn't want anybody to touch it because didn't want to have to deal with trying to recreate it. And it was something that was installed natively on his machine. So I went in there and I did a Dockerized setup for him, got everything up and running, showed him where everything was, and he thought it was great. And then I just I deleted all of his Docker containers. And he's looking at me like, oh my God, like, what have you done? What have you done? You know, but it's no big deal, right? Because you just spin them up again, you recreate them and away you go. And that's what you're talking about in terms of having them be stateless. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Maybe one more. So um, another thing that is, it, it relates a little bit to what we have discussed now. It's regarding log files, log messages. Mm. So this is also a standard when using Docker is uh, your application should log everything to standard out and standard error. So do not write any, any files with log messages because the Docker daemon is basically capable of getting the messages from standard out, standard error, and you then can configure Docker in a way to to manage those log messages. So you can then persist them on the disk of the server that you're running mm -hmm. Docker on or the local machine that you're using, uh, or you can uh, push it to, to services like, for example, CloudWatch or any other log collecting services that basically collect log messages from all your containers everywhere and centralize them in a place or Splunk or stuff like that is doing such a thing. So the, the thing here to remember as a do is, yeah, just, just log messages to standard out and standard error uh, and the application shall, shall basically not cover or, or not, not manage any log files or something like that. Yeah, that's... Because you could almost think about log files as state in a way, right? Yes. So you don't want to, yeah, you don't want to write that state to a disk. You can use like one of these services that you mentioned, like paper trail, roll bar, like there's any number of places you can just aggregate your logs, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So another one that is also a best practice is, so by default or... Uh, usually you should not run more than one process into one co in one container. Mm -hmm. So that means sometimes you have to split up your application into multiple processes. So for example, you might use an Nginx container and a PHP FPM container, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, you, In theory, you could try... <laughs> to get it working all in one container. But it's a best practice really to split that into multiple containers because basically that's what Docker is, is built for. It's it's to manage one single process. It makes it it makes life easier with terminating that process, sending kill signals to that process and everything. Life gets much easier if you have just one process running in your container. And usually that's very simple to achieve just by yeah split up your application in multiple containers if you need to run multiple processes. And maybe something that I need to mention here is, so let's let's say, okay, we have split up our application into an Nginx and then PHP FPM container. And now you want to make sure that you deploy those two containers to the same machine to avoid adding additional network latency into mm -hmm. a cluster. And this is what ECS, Kubernetes, all these container orchestrators are, are capable of making sure that they always deploy those two containers together on one, one machine. So that's basically something that you can configure when deploying those containers on your local machine. 
it's simple because yeah, there's only one machine there, but it gets more complicated when you deploy to a cloud environment, for example. Yeah, and in your, and I know this isn't directly related to what you're mentioning, but in your Docker Compose file, you can also say what service relies on what other service, right? In terms of like, well, don't start up PHP until Postgres is running because it needs it. Exactly, yeah. The Docker Compose file can define dependencies between different services running, yeah. Yeah, and that's the root key of the Docker Compose file is services, right? So in each one of these services, as you're mentioning, you kind of want that to be in its own separate Docker container so that I mean, Docker just doesn't really perform that well when you have one monolithic blob, right? Because it's just not really designed to do that. And then also whenever you're updating or rebuilding stuff, you got to rebuild the whole thing. You, it's not just a, a differential rebuild of the small thing that you actually changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So tell me something that we should not do. Like what is a what is a really terrible practice in terms of with Docker that you've seen people do that just we should be careful to avoid doing it. It's maybe not terrible, but I think it's it's not really needed. So when when people use uh, Docker for the first time, especially when they start deploying to production, they are often asking me, so how can I SSH into that machine? <laughs> so uh, how can yes. I see what's yeah. going on? And that's a that's a valid question, right? Because having access especially root access to a machine really helps to debug things that's that's obvious and and fair plus if you're if you're a devops person like that's that's like your bread and butter like you need the how do i ssh in right? exactly yeah. And, yeah. and the answer to that i would say is you don't okay <laughs> you don't ssh into those docker containers anymore especially so if you use um, aws fargate which makes it very easy to spin up containers but you, there's no way that you can log into the machines that run those docker containers in theory some people start then adding an, an SSH server to their Docker oh, images, no, <laughs> which no. are highly, which, <laughs> exactly. Ah. So I don't recommend doing so. It's in theory, it's possible, but you shouldn't do it. But the question is, what do I do instead? So yes. how do I then debug my machines? And I think the answer to that is, first of all, logging becomes much more important. So the application especially, so that's that's more for the developers. Make sure you're logging all the relevant information uh, to standard out and standard error. So for example, response times from your database, latencies to any third-party systems, errors, of course. But only that makes uh, makes it possible to, to debug problems mm. in production. Also, it might be interesting to use Obviously, it's interesting to to use the metrics that the cloud cluster or the, the container cluster is providing. So they are usually providing yeah, CPU, memory, network, and so on utilization. So you can use that to find out about um, bottlenecks and problems in your production environments. Uh, or maybe it's it's also to gain insights. It's a good idea to have an application monitoring tool bundled with your application that basically also logs kind of yeah requests to other systems and errors and stuff like that automatically to to a backend. Yeah, so more formalized methods of in introspection than just let me SSH in and, and root around and try and figure out what happened, right? Exactly. And and that's especially if you deploy to a cloud environment, things get really dynamic. So as you as we talked before, you want to be able to scale up and down dynamically. So you don't have any machines that run 24/7 for <laughs> months anymore. Right. It's possible that a machine just runs for half an hour or something. So it's even not no longer possible to debug stuff like that so you have to change your tool chain a little bit for these kind of tasks and that's um yeah i totally agree that's that's a, a lot to do a lot to learn at the beginning pick the right tools and stuff like that but at the end i think uh, it, it really pays off and you don't have to ssh into your machines anymore which is great because you you cannot do any accidental changes to your production systems and every machine is exactly the same as the other that's that's what's basically the outcome of all of that. Yeah, it's kind of, to me, it's kind of the difference between like those old school, whether it's Sherlock Holmes or whatever detective, you know, show that you might've watched where they go to the crime scene and they kind of walk around and then try and piece together what might've happened, you know? And that's kind of the old school way of, of going in, just SSHing in and looking around to see what could be going on or going wrong. And, you know, the more modern way is, well, we got video cameras everywhere. Let's just look at the tape. <laughs> let's, let's see what actually happened here, which is what some of the these monitoring services allow you to do, right? Yes. And I think you can get very far just by using the built-in log management and metrics that you get. I'm not too big fan of, of buying expensive monitoring tools. So I think... Mm -hmm. You can get quite far by by mastering the built-in stuff, but 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 totally agree. Sometimes it's it's also valuable to add a tool, but but oftentimes you can yeah 
just just learn the basics and dive into what the the platform is offering already. Mm. Well, what do you what do you think, Mary? Now, my understanding is you've been doing some playing around with with Docker Lady. What do you think of this whole kind of? It, it almost seems like a a transition because it really does seem like a whole lot of the industry is is moving towards this containerization. Yeah, I I think I need to get myself on board with it. So you know that's what I guess I'm going to be doing now that I'm staying home. <laughs> <laughs> now it's it it feels familiar you know it feels like like splitting things up into processes and thinking of things in processes and interprocess communication and rather than just one giant image and that's that's not a novel concept so that should work you know debugging is always one step forward one step backwards two steps sideways <laughs> Sounds sounds like that's yeah. happening too. Yep. Because well, I have good news for you, Marion. So since you're staying at home with the whole COVID nineteen thing, you got some more time on your hands. I've got good news for you, Andreas. As part of his work with his brother on Cloud or Not, they've got some stuff on rapid Docker deployment on AWS. You could just sit down. You could start learning that, right, Andreas? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we have written a book and also created a video course, Rapid Docker on AWS. And, and as the title says already, the idea is to give developers an easy and fast way to deploy their web applications on AWS. Not only that, but first of all, dockerize the application and then deploy it to AWS. Right, right. And so that's, that's the two parts. It's first learn about Docker and how to build those Docker images, how to use Docker Compose and everything. And then what's the easiest way uh, with the least effort and the least operational effort to get that running on AWS. So we are using AWS Fargate and a load balancer application, load balancer, RDS, or serverless to do so. So basically, yeah, spin all that up in a very similar way that you do with Docker Compose by just mm. yeah, using infrastructure as code to spin up all the needed resources to get a typical web application running within minutes instead of days on AWS. Because, you know, AWS is maybe not the most developer-friendly environment Environment. Oh, and God. we have <laughs> we have we have tried to come up with a, a simple to use um, standard solution for web applications. So there are examples for for Node, PHP, Ruby, Java, and Python. So yeah, whatever you do, you you will find an example that that should point you in the right direction to Dockerize your own application and get it running. And there's a if you sign up with coupon code Dev Mode FM, they'll they'll get a ten percent discount, right? Absolutely, <laughs> Which, <laughs> we'll do that. <laughs> which, I, which I totally just made up, but who knows? You know, enter it, maybe, maybe it'll work. Basically, maybe he'll set it up. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Andreas, it's been fantastic having you on here. But I think that about wraps it up for another episode of the devmode.fm podcast. If you'd like to have every episode delivered to your favorite player, you can subscribe via RSS or find us on iTunes or Google Play. And if you like what we're doing, please review the show on iTunes. It's the best way to help others find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at devmode.fm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Leave us a comment on the devmode.fm website where we can continue the conversation. For the devmode.fm podcast, I'm Andrew Welch. I'm Mary Nullivant. And thank you, Andreas Wittig, for coming on. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Sorry about uh, just throwing the coupon code out there. I was just having fun. But if you want to make one, go ahead. <laughs> I will absolutely do, of course. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on. And I hope uh, your wife survives the uh, onslaught <laughs> of uh, COVID-19 patients that she's having to deal with. Hope, hope that for you uh, all as well. <laughs>